Hello and welcome to episode 96 of Fergo and the Freak. I'm that bloke from Rugby League Project, Andrew Ferguson. You can find me on Twitter at AndrewRLP. And joining me once again is the glorious League Freak, who you can find on Twitter at League Freak. How are you going today, mate? I'm going really well. I'm really excited about this episode. Um, people have been really enjoying the history episodes that we've done so far. And I think that this might be the best one yet. So, and it's a, at a very a key moment for the game in Australia and one that it's it's kind of incredible that when we go through this episode that they got through this year. So, um, so yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, this is something I've, I've dabbled in a, a bit of history around this sort of season a fair bit in the past, so I know chunks of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and so much stuff gets tied into this. So today mm-hmm. we're going to look at the second season of the New South Wales Rugby League. That was 1909. And uh, I suppose we can't really get into it without discussing a few things that happened in 1908 first. We're not going to go into the birth of the game and stuff like that. Just a, a few things that happened in 1908 that were important in 1909. Mm-hmm. Um, so there were eight teams uh, initially. Uh, a ninth team was was brought in that was Cumberland. Um, they played a game against East in a trial match, um, and Daly Mesher didn't play in that one, but East still won eighteen to four, and the league figured that was good enough and brought them in. Mm-hmm. This is a this is when the competition had already started. Um, it was it was an odd decision because St George had already applied to be in in the competition previously, but were overlooked because the administrators didn't want an odd number of teams. And then just a few weeks yeah. later, they decided to bring in Cumberland and have an odd number of teams. <laughs> it is a bit weird. The other thing, and, and you were talking to me about this the other night, was that they weren't sure that people would want to travel all the way to St. George. And it's something I think people need to keep in mind in these episodes, is that Sydney is very different to what Sydney is right now. I mean, places like Parramatta were the back of beyond. Um, it's still a small city. It's difficult to get around back then. I mean, we know what it's like now, but uh, people need to just keep in mind that it's a very, very different city to the one we have today. Yeah, I mean, even in 1920, there were adverts going up about, you know, being able to buy blocks of uh, vacant land out in Cronulla. Yeah, yeah. So it shows you just how far away things were then. Yeah, I'd Um, love to go back in time and buy some blocks of land, hey. Oh, bloody, especially at Cronulla Way. Yeah, yeah. Um. Now, the first ever rugby league touring side to Australia was a New Zealand Maori team. And they visited in May of 1908 when the league had only been, you know, had only been playing for a month at that stage. Mm-hmm. Now, the Maori team had played next to no rugby league at all. So the New South Wales Rugby League appointed George Boss, who was a Sydney referee, to help teach the Maori players about how to play the game. There were a few dramas that came along the way with that when I think he was asked to referee a few of their games and people thought there'd be a bit of bias and stuff involved. Mm-hmm. Um, There's little bits of animosity all along the way, um, an issue with, with gate takings at one match. Um, but the biggest one was when Sydney man uh, Robert McKethney Jack had allegedly been in correspondence with the Mary team regarding organising of games for the tour as well as venues and other events. Mm-hmm. And he was asking for 5% of all the Maori gate takings from each match they played as payment for his services. Mm-hmm. Now, 
The Maori team, though, led by Albert Asher, had said that while they had had discussions, no actual agreement had been signed off or agreed to. So mm-hmm. as far as they were concerned, um, he wasn't involved with the club, with the team in any way. Now, after playing a few games in Sydney, the Maori team then travelled north of the border. And at this time, Mr Jack took the team management to the equity court to try and get back the money he felt he was owed. On the day of the Maori game against Toowoomba, Jack had successfully got an injunction against 18 Maori players, preventing them from receiving any money from, from the game. The New South, New South Wales Rugby League assumed that this meant that the tourists would not receive any money from them for the entire tour until the case had been settled in court. So they contacted the Queensland Rugby, Rugby League Amateur Association, I think it was, mm-hmm. and informed them of the matter. And so the Queensland League then withheld monies as well for the games up there. Wow, it, wouldn't that be uh, just a wonderful moment for the Maori players? All of a sudden, everyone's saying to them, "Listen, we can't pay her. Well, we can't pay her cent. It's court ordered." That must have been wonderful. They they were getting genuinely pissed off, and in one mm. game, they started getting very violent on the field. Yeah, much brawling. Um, one thing I love is is um, a newspaper report said that the the crowd were jeering and hooting them. We don't hear hooting being used as a term anymore about crowds booing fans and stuff, uh, booing players and stuff like that. I love no. it. I would love to hear some hooting come back into the game. Maybe we should do that for Retro Round, bring back hooting. Yeah. I wonder what hooting sounds like. I've got no idea. Can you imagine <laughs> if it was some weird noise that just has been lost in time, that if you heard it again, you'd be like, what? What are they doing? It's like if you go, to, if you went to this point, right, in history, and you said, listen to an English soccer match and they sing, they'd be like, what? Why? They'd find it weird. <laughs> exactly. Now, while the Maori team were touring around Australia, the New Zealand all-gold side returned from their 1907-08 tour, and that mm-hmm. tour in, in, had um, Daly Messenger on board. Um, and they played a handful of games in Australia before heading, you know, before they finished up and headed back home. Now, the the Maori team, at this stage, they were at the end of their tour. They was they were so pissed off that they hadn't been getting any of their money that they actually decided that what they would do was organise a game where they'd play 15 aside rules, which mm-hmm. wasn't under the control of the New South Wales Rugby League, mm-hmm. in an order to try and get money to pay for their journey back home. Mm-hmm. And this whole time... Um, one of the founding fathers of, of rugby league in Australia, um, JJ Giltman, he had blankly refused. I'm not giving you money. It's a court matter. It's got nothing to do with the league. Mm-hmm. When the 1908-09 Kangaroos set sail, Giltman went with them, and so Henry Hoy, uh, sorry, um, Horry, Horry Miller took over the um, the treasurer role, or sorry, the secretary mm-hmm. role of the game, and. He, he decided then the best way to, to deal with this matter was to just at least pay for the Marys to go back home. And so that's what he did. And they were happy with that. Yeah. So much so, they actually agreed to come back in 1909 and have another tour. And that sets the base for what happens in 1909. Part of it, yes. Yes. <laughs> so the, the Kangaroo set sail. Um, a few of the players that were selected... Uh, sorry, that weren't selected, caused a bit of an uproar. And they actually got picked later on. Pat Walsh is one of them. 
mm-hmm. um, who I've written about before. Um, and so he and a few others went on a second boat that left a, a few weeks after the initial kangaroos had gone off. So the kangaroos actually went across on two boats. Um, yeah, that seems fraught with danger. <laughs> like, <laughs> like these days you wouldn't want to be on two different planes, let alone two different boats. You exactly. never know what's going to happen on the high seas. <laughs> and they were on the seas for, I, I can't remember, it was either six or eight weeks uh-huh. was the journey from, from Australia to England. Can you imagine the uh, issues that would happen if modern-day players were on the high seas for that long? I suppose one thing would be that there's no internet out there. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it was widely reported that in order to try and cut down on costs, Giltman had the Australian players shoveling coal into the, the boilers downstairs of the ship and stuff like that, and that's how they paid their way over there. Oh, wow. Was that ever um, confirmed? Um, I'm not sure. It's it's one of those things where it, it, it most likely is true. Yeah. But wow. there's, a, there's a lot of fables that go on around rugby league in these early years, so sometimes it's hard to, hard to pick the truth from the, the fiction, but... I think yeah. with that one, it, it's probably more likely to be true than fiction. Yeah, and th- I guess the other thing is too, and as the story goes on, there's probably things that were said to kind of discredit people as well a little bit. Oh, absolutely. Lots of things were said. Mm. Um, unfortunately, not all of them were written down. Yeah. Um, one meeting in particular was, though, which we were getting too soon. Yeah. What was written down about that meeting. Um, Meticulous detail. <laughs> yes. So the the tour left before the 1908 season had completed, which meant that the, the finals were played with all the star players gone. Mm-hmm. Um, South beat East in the, in the final of 1908, 14-12. And that, that pretty much ended the – well, that ended the season in Australia. The kangaroos then went over, went over to England. They had it was the longest kangaroos tour ever, and it was the first one. They played forty five games on this tour from uh, October through till February March of nineteen oh nine. And this and, was the way that the game made money at this stage too. Like these were the money making ventures that because rugby league had to make money. You know, it was a professional code. So this was the lifeblood of the professional code at this stage. That's right. And this this tour was actually organised as a private venture by um, James Gilton. And so it wasn't funded by the New South Wales Rugby League. Mm-hmm. And Gilton saw how successful the um, the Wallabies tour, uh, sorry, the All Golds tour was the year before. He, he heard how successful that was financially and thought this is going to be a good money spinner. Mm-hmm. and he was likely going to put some of the money that he made from it back into the game as well to keep it going for 1909 and, and so on and so forth. Um, unfortunately, uh, some bad weather mixed with a lot of strikes in the north of England meant that the tour drew very low crowds and ran at a massive loss. Wow. This tour, um, little little news trickled back to Australia, mostly just results of the game. But by early 1909, news reports started coming in about how the tour had was running at a financial loss. Mm-hmm. But it was being somewhat um, conservative as to how much they thought the tour had lost. 
mm-hmm. and it was found out that um, in the end they'd lost so much money they couldn't afford to pay for the tickets for all of the players to come back home. So wow. some of the players had to stay in England and, and they took up deals over there while the the Northern Union, which is now the English Rugby League, um, they then paid for the remaining fares for the for the Australian players to come back home. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's incredible. Um, some of the names that stayed back, I mean, do we have the names of the players that stayed back in England? There was a few. There was uh, James Devereux, who was or also known as Jimmy Devereux, um, was one of the centres. Um, he, he, he went on this constant back and forth between Australia and England for, you know, the best part of a decade. Mm-hmm. Um, he was an absolute star centre, and many of the players on that kangaroo tour said that he was better than Daly Messenger. Mm-hmm. Um, so he played for Hull FC, um, constantly backwards and forwards. So he'd come and play with Norse for a year or two, then he'd go back over and play for Hull for a season and a half, then come back again. He did that a few times. Um, had a tragic ending to his life. He was doing some work on the Sydney Harbour Bridge in the 1920s and a metal beam fell on him and crushed his hip and his leg and um, he couldn't walk anymore. So um, ended up going over to England and... His death certificate says he was lost at sea. We don't really know when he died, but it might be argued that he may have committed suicide out in the ocean out there in England. Oh, okay. So they maybe just walked out to the ocean and that was it. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, not too short up in there, but yeah, he he had um, yeah you know, he was, a, he was a, obviously a proud man, and he because he'd been successful in two countries mm-hmm. and. Had been considered as being better than Messenger by some of his, you know, some of his players. Yeah. Um, not being able to play or run around anymore would have hurt his, would have hurt him big time. Yeah. Um, so another one was Pat Walsh, um, legendary figure, and quite part of his story in rugby union has an awful lot to do with how rugby league began. Mm-hmm. Uh, come from Newcastle, he's played. Rugby Union in, in uh, Newcastle became a test player for the Wallabies. Um, then for some, you know, obscure reason, stopped being picked after an incident happened up in a game in Newcastle. Uh, so he decided to go over to New Zealand and played Rugby Union over there for a little bit. Mm-hmm. And then he missed out on rep honours there once or twice. So he took a break from the game and went to South Africa and played VFL and won a oh, premiership yeah. in South Africa playing VFL. That is very, very random. <laughs> and uh, came back to New Zealand, was playing rugby union when he got called up to come over and play in the rugby league competition in its debut year. And got off the boat in Sydney from the journey from New Zealand. And on the, he was collected by um, some rugby league officials and they took him straight to the, uh, I think it was the agricultural sports ground or the, the agra. Mm-hmm. And on that way, he was told about the differences between rugby league and rugby union because he was going to play straight after he got off that uh, that journey, and I think he lined up for Queensland and he he was actually had never been I don't think he'd ever been there before. Wow! So he played state football as his debut rugby league game. That's incredible. I love stories about, and I guess it shows that back at this time in sporting history. Like the best sportsmen were just the best all-round sportsmen, and they were able to basically go and play anything because it, there. Were, I mean, there was no you didn't have to sign contracts and things like that to in the same way you do today. 
Like if there was a sport that wanted to get you on board and they were willing to pay you, you could just go and play that sport. And that's why rugby league was successful in getting a lot of these great athletes because they were actually paying while there were other sports that weren't. Um, and I love these, these stories of players that they have these unique pathways that they took, you know, and, and that one is incredible. Like playing VFL in South Africa, I bet there's no VFL in South Africa anymore. <laughs> no idea. So he has he has a unique record where he won a rugby union premiership in Newcastle and in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. He won a VFL premiership in South Africa and he won a rugby league premiership with Huddersfield in England. Wow, random. Very, very random. Three titles, three codes, three different countries. He did all right. <laughs> um, stunning athlete. Yeah. <clears throat> so, um, yeah, as as the tour was about to play its final game, and I think this was March 5 of 1909, mm-hmm. the New South Wales Rugby League held its annual meeting. Mm-hmm. And there'd been some, there were some startling observations about the management of the game, especially its finances, that were made at this meeting. Uh, President Henry Hoyle and Treasurer Victor Trumper, the legendary Australian test cricketer, um, they were two of the three founding fathers, along with James Gilton. Uh, they were at the meeting and they had to face all the questions that came up. Yeah. Uh, the, I suppose the, the biggest question that came up was about the fact there was no balance sheet from the first year of the game being played. <clears throat> and this was put down largely to the fact that um, the, the three founding fathers had been so busy running around everywhere trying to get the game going and, and making money that they didn't have time to sit down and um, do all the finances and stuff like that, which was a legitimate, you know, reason for what had happened. Yeah. There but, was a lot of organising of stuff to do at this point in the game's history, like even where we play. Have we, you know, what clubs have we got? What facilities have they got? What players have we got? You know, they were juggling a lot of things at once. That's right. And at this time, too, for a few weeks, there'd been news trickling in to Australia about the dire financial status of the Kangaroo Tour, mm-hmm. which would have had a lot of the um, club's delegates and officials a bit on edge as to, you know, the state of the game financially coming into the second season. Yeah. And the other thing to remember about this point, too, is that this is a brand new venture for a lot of businessmen and a lot of players. And they, you know, this is only 1909, and they're hearing that the game, the big money-spinning thing for the game, has actually lost money. Like, they would have been getting nervous that at the end of the day, they're not going to get paid, and that's kind of what they're there for. Yes, Um, especially when a lot of them, including, you know, Gilton and and Hoyle, had put their own money into the game to get it started as well. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, they, they had a vested interest in, in what they'd invested in the game as well, but they also wanted the game to, to succeed and become financially, good, um, you know, successful as well. Yeah. <clears throat> now, at this meeting, and this is going to sound rather boring, um, but it's quite pivotal to the, the chaos that comes along in the following few weeks. Mm-hmm. The Newcastle Club were unable to send any delegates to the, me- to the meeting. However, it was stated at the meeting that by Hoyle, that Glebe's Arthur Waymark and South Sydney's Edward Fry had been appointed to act on Newcastle's behalf. 
These appointments were questioned, to which Hoyle replied that he'd received a letter from the Newcastle club confirming their appointments. However, unfortunately, he'd left the letter back in his office. He also said he would produce the letter the following morning. So the meeting carried on, and it went on to the next drama, which was the lack of the balance sheet. This news was accompanied by a statement that Trumper and Giltman had been banking monies for the league into a separate account under Trumper's name. Most of the office bearers retained their seats, with Hoyle defeating Edward Broughton by just one vote. After the meeting, Trumper revealed that the account did exist, however, it was merely a trust fund designed to hold the rent for the upcoming season's games at the Agricultural Showground. Yeah, and they were worried that basically there was money being filtered off of the game for personal use. And that they were saying, well, there is an account, but it's for the game. And I can understand where these other clubs and, and delegates would have not been real happy about that, especially when none of it was written down. Like they were just like, oh, yeah, take our, take our word for it. So I understand where they were coming from. That's exactly right. That was, that was the big reason why there was so much angst between the delegates and the, the three founding fathers of the game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, after the meeting, North Sydney delegate Alexander Knox, um, he's someone you're going to hear about a bit more here. He's great. He's, he's a he's great character. Quite a protagonist. Um, <laughs> he stated that North Sydney would consider leaving the league if a balance sheet could not be presented and if a full-time secretary was not appointed. He also suggested that East, South and West may follow North. This spat between Knox and Henry Hoyle was played out through all of the newspapers for the next 10 days, backwards and forwards. Um, the infamous Newcastle delegates letter was not presented the following day after the meeting either, but several days later. However, it was not signed and therefore all elections in the annual meeting were declared null and a new meeting had to take place. So this has just pissed everyone else off even more. Yeah, yeah, because it's like, well, we haven't got a, a balance sheet and yeah, that all of that meeting, that basically doesn't count anymore. So yeah, now everyone's really upset. Yeah, and they've got to go back and do it all over again. And yeah. it's just another piece of bad management, which is sort of, I dare say, a lot of them are thinking this sort of proves that there's something going on with the financial side as well. If they can't even get a letter right, then how yeah, can and, we trust them with the money? And they're still hearing about this tour that's a financial disaster. And, and like, it, it's, they must have been wondering if this was all just going to fall apart very quickly because it's only 1909. Second club season of the the rugby league in Australia, and well, it just sounds like it's falling apart. Yeah, it it really is. Everything that could go wrong really is right now. Mm. So, on March fifteen, a second annual meeting took place, and this one was quite a bit more, um, let's say, animated. Mm-hmm. There were accusations, allegations, and even some abuse held back and forth between, mostly between Hoyle and Knox ultimately leading to Hoyle um, resigning. So we've got a few, we've got a fair few quotes and moments from that, that actual meeting that took place. Yeah. Um, so I'll read a few out, the, just without too much context behind them, just to show some of the, the dialogue between Knox and Hoyle. Okay. And, and, this, has gone on. and this is beautiful because... This is actually what was said in this meeting between these actual people. Like, and I love that. It's, it's such an incredible part of history that we've got. It's, we're very lucky as a game to have this. 
Yes. Um, so you got to realize too that this is in a day when they people didn't swear, so it's a very proper and very, I suppose, measured argument that went on between them. Yeah, yeah, it's great. Right, so at one stage, Knox says to to Hoyle, who's who's chairing the meeting, "Let us get on." You know, as in, you know, get the get the meeting moving. And Hoyle replied with, "I will not have this dictation from you. You have heard. You have been heard too much during the week already." <laughs> oh, chastising man. him for going to the media so politely as well <laughs> um, at another point Hoyle said I am the supreme officer of this body I will see that things are correctly done to which Knox replied but you are not the Tsar oh man <laughs> I, mean, I suppose being called a Tsar back then was, was akin to being called a Nazi today because uh, yeah. the Nazis weren't around, because the Nazis weren't around then, so you know had to go with the Russians. Bizarre, yeah. It's it's uh, I, I love the way they speak. I wish people still sp- spoke like that. <laughs> um, Jersey flags and stuff. He says um, he he wanted to say something, but he was told to sit down by Henry Hoyle, who was still standing on his feet, having an altercation with Knox, <laughs> and Flag then piped up. I will not sit down. You seem to be having all the say, and I want a little of it. You have no right to be in the chair. Wow. It's just slowly starting to build. Yeah, now, yeah. We've, we've got a few lengthy bits here, and this is, you know, well, I deliberated about whether I'd put this in here or not, but it is to do with this, the letter of the Newcastle delegates, mm-hmm. and it's quite pitiful because it, it ended up changing how the game was run. Okay, go for it. So, and this is still quotes. So this is a quote from Mr. Alexander Knox. At the last meeting, a letter purporting to come from the Newcastle Club appointed two delegates. That letter was unsigned. On the assurance of Mr. Hoyle, I admitted the letter on the condition that he produced the other letter he received on the Saturday following the meeting. The whole of the election depended upon these delegates. I can prove, however, that the letter presented by the president was never signed by Mr. Chambers of Newcastle and that the meeting of the local league up there was never held. The Newcastle Club repudiated this election, and Mr Chambers gave me a signed declaration that the letter sent to Mr Hoyle was a counterfeit. I don't accuse Mr Hoyle with being accessory before the fact, but I will say this. And then Henry Hoyle replied, Oh, yes, you are. Then Knox said, I say I am not. Hoyle then said, Let us get on. God help the poor league. To which Knox replied, Yes, the poor old league. It has been mismanaged. If Mr. Hoyle, after reading the letter from Newcastle on March 3, had forwarded it to the Secretary of the League, all the trouble would have been saved, as the signature could have been compared with others in the office. Wow. So so here's my first question. Do we know where that false letter come from? And was it indeed a false letter, or did the Newcastle delegation just change their mind? And, and decide, no, we, we, you know, we might have sent that letter, but let's say we didn't, because we didn't sign it. We can do that. That is a very good question. Mm. Um, because it seems it seems weird that there would be a physical letter, and it would have the information that was needed, but it wasn't signed. It just seems like a weird circumstance to me. There's... Like that, at some point somebody has had to make that letter, whether it was Newcastle or it was somebody else that wanted to have 
Newcastle's power in their hands. There was an allegation made in this meeting that um, the league may have may have been, so this wasn't proven, may mm-hmm. have been pressuring some members up in Newcastle to act, you know, as the um, as the ambas- the ambassadors for the Newcastle club at the meeting to support Hoyle. Um, there's nothing to prove that that was the case, mm-hmm. but it was an allegation that was put to Hoyle. Um, and amidst all the, the chaos that went on in this meeting, it didn't get addressed. So we don't know okay. what the case was there. It seems that the Newcastle club as a whole were largely unaware about these delegates being named. Mm-hmm. So maybe I they could, were maybe I they could, were just planted. I could also see a situation where they were trying to get Newcastle to back Hoyle, and so they've been like, "Look, we'll write, we'll do everything. They don't have to do anything. We'll, we'll write the letter up and everything." But then you get to Newcastle, and they're like, "Well, we didn't." We didn't give our okay for any of that. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. And it's all, and it, people need to remember the communication between Sydney and Newcastle wasn't really all that easy back then. That's exactly right. To the point where, um, Knox actually himself travelled up to Newcastle to meet, meet with the delegates and he had to pay for that out of his own pocket. Mm-hmm. Um, just to get to the bottom of this case. And he even came back with a statutory declaration from the Newcastle Club. And it read, March 15, 1909, I hereby declare and admit that the signature A Chambers, which appears at the foot of the letter dated March 2, 1909, and addressed to H.C. Hoyle Esquire, Sydney, is not my handwriting. Signed, A Chambers. Witness T. Bray, solicitor, Newcastle. Wow, that's uh, pretty devastating. So Mr. Buckley then asked Knox, who read that out, are you going to say who signed the letter? And he replied, yes. It cost me 10 shillings and a cab to find out. (laughs) (laughs) To which Mr. Peters replied, someone says Sherlock Holmes and a fireplace. And Mr. Quinlan replied, it is time we had a Sherlock Holmes. So we're starting to see sarcasm coming into the the, the whole argument because some people are seeing this as being farcical. Yeah, and, and to you some would. extent it is. Yeah, it is. And the interesting thing about Knox, and like Knox, I can see where they would think, man, this guy's a bit of a troublemaker, but this guy's actually putting into his own pocket to sort this stuff out. And he is trying to work out what actually happened. Um, but it is interesting to hear them kind of taking the piss at the same time. Like it's kind of that same. I guess it's the same sort of Aussie humour, hey? It's still then back there. Yeah. You see it. You know, it's it's great. It's fantastic. The great thing about this meeting is, you know, 90% of it is Knox and Hoyle arguing with one another. Mm-hmm. And then just every now and then, whenever there's just a, a small opportunity, some of the other delegates or board members that are in the meeting will just pipe up with just some outrageous line and just sit back down. They weren't. <laughs> It's not like they were there to contribute anything to the conversation. They were just spectators watching this to-wing and throwing of these two blokes up the front. Yeah, it's like they're one step away from going, ooh, I wouldn't take that. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, so Knox then said, I want this league to be administered according to the rules, but rather than let it masquerade before the public as an amateur body, I would sooner see it die a thousand times over like a dog. 
it had been said that some members of the league were only in it for what they could get out of it. I want to change that impression. But while on that subject, I desire to say that Mr. Hoyle has stated in public that he has never received a penny out of the league. And if anyone says so, he will have that person arrested. I now intend to give Mr. Hoyle his opportunity. I now charge him with having received pounds. Hoyle then replied, I say now emphatically that I've never received anything from this movement except what was paid me by the Queensland League when I went there. Wow. I mean, so, Knox is putting it on the line. Yeah, he's just gone right. I've just owned you on one thing about this letter. Now I'm just going to now I'm just going to test you. Yeah. Test your word on this other matter. And then he's gone back to the whole financial thing and you know whether he's trying to make it out I guess that Hoyle is in it for the money and that's I suppose it's going to be the backbone of his argument about the secret accounts. Yeah. 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 Hoyle replied to this saying, let us get on. You make me tired. To which some random delegate just jumped up and says, you've made us tired for 12 months. And there was lots of cheering. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Then Hoyle then, uh, a little while longer, they, they started talking about the balance sheet and the discrepancy in income, which Victor Trump had then explained everything and and how it all was um, to which, there was no argument about it. Hoyle then piped back up and addressed Mr. Knox about his journey up to Newcastle. Mm-hmm. So he sat down for a while and he's been stewing on this. He's gone, he's ah, yeah. I've got a question now. Yeah. <laughs> he said, um, Knox had gone to Newcastle without any authority from the New South Wales Rugby League. He should have been, Hoyle saying that he should have been informed of the visit so that he could have gone with him. And Mr. Miller stood up and says, why did he not take us all and we could have had a picnic? (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Um, Before Hoyle could finish, someone else jumped up and says, never mind, the the blowflies will get around you. Wow. So we then had the final bit where someone else has questioned the the balance sheet. Hoyle then said, no one can say that we are in debt. Mr. Knox then steps up and says, yes, I can, because I've seen the books. A delegate then moved that the question would be put, and Mr. Hoyle then just said, I've had enough. I tender my resignation, and tomorrow I'll withdraw from all my bonds in the game, and I will not contest this election. Wow. He threw his pram, his toys out the pram, hey? He just had enough and, and gave in. Yeah. That's interesting. I mean, the writing was on the wall, it sounds like, for him in regards to the letter. I mean, the letter put him in a terrible position. And from there, he was in a basically a no-win situation because even if he was in the right in terms of the game's finances and that, they can still go back to that letter. And that letter is sketchy, whatever way you look at it. That's right, the whole situation. And the fact that he couldn't present it the day after the, the meeting was held when he said he would... Mm. Um, that just made it seem like it was possibly being manufactured elsewhere. Yeah, and he said, didn't he say he had it in his desk drawer? Yeah. Like, he, he was pretty adamant that, it, oh, yeah, it's just in my desk, desk drawer, and, yeah, it didn't turn up for a while, and, yeah, it it really put him in a bad situation. It did. Not, and we're not saying that he, he did forge anything like that, but it just, no. it's just it's more the appearance of what had happened. Yeah. Um. 
it also turned out later on too that there was no secret slush fund. It was, as they said, it was set up to pay for venue, you know, renting out grounds and stuff like that. Yeah, it was all a, it was all above board. Yep. It, it was exactly as they said, and it just wasn't because they didn't have have it all written down. That was yeah. their, their only problem with all of this. That was their crime. Yeah. Wasn't written down at the time. Mm. Um, so Ernest Broughton was named as the new president. Horry Miller replaced Trump as treasurer. And Tom Phelan was appointed as the acting secretary until James Goodman returned home from the kangaroo tour. Mm. Um, it's worth noting just briefly too, Henry Hoyle was a, uh, a prominent Labor politician and a very good one um, for quite a while. So... He came into the the presidency role at the New South Wales Rugby League in 1907-08 as, you know, the big speaker. He'd do all the talking. Giltner was the money man. Mm-hmm. Um, Trump had been involved in organising, I think, the Sydney VFL competition mm-hmm. and obviously involved in some of the um, professionalism of cricket, you know, I, I dare say at the time as well. So he had that experience behind him as well. Yeah, and the so, three of them had like a, and they all had different aspects that needed to be there to start up rugby league, and it, it's interesting that they they all brought something to the table. But here we are, pretty close to the start of it all happening, and all of a sudden, one of them has had to stand down. Yes, and then one got replaced, and another mm. one is on his way home. And unaware that all of this has taken place. Yeah, absolutely clueless that this is going on. So, brief brief bio on Ernest Broughton, who became the second president. Um, he was born in Queensland, relocated to Sydney when he was 19 years old, um, became a politician and won the seat of Sydney King in the New South Wales Legislative Assembly, representing the Progressive Party. In 1903, he was involved in a physical altercation at Parliament with another politician named Mr Norton. Mm-hmm. I add this in here because it's, I find it amusing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, Broughton voices a disagreement in a comment made by Norton and called him a social leper. <laughs> Mr. Norton became incensed and swung a punch at Broughton. Norton stated afterwards that he gave Broughton a black eye. However, Broughton publicly refuted the claim and added that he scarcely felt the blow. The newspapers of Sydney supported him, stating that they had seen him after the incident and there was no indications he'd even been hit. That's so cool. It's so interesting. This is such a different time in history, you know. It's not – there's no pictures. It's just, you know, uh, newspapers writing stuff. It's amazing. It's really amazing. That's right. Um, so in 1908, he proposed a bill that demanded all gun owners should be licensed. In March oh. of 1909, he was appointed as patron for the Eastern Suburbs Rugby League Club, and two weeks later he was made president of the game. Wow. Incredible. Yeah, it gets more incredible because his tenure as president lasted just 22 days before he resigned, citing ill health, a heavy work schedule, and an upcoming holiday. Oh, jeez. <laughs> he wanted out of there pretty bad, eh? <laughs> I dare say he got in there and, and saw the chaos going on and went, yeah, you know what, this is probably just not for me. Yeah, I'd, I'd rather just stick to politics, thanks, where people just try and hit me. Oh, jeez. That reminds me of when, do you remember when uh, Australia's Wonderland shut down and they had a press conference and they said, why did it shut down? And the spokesman gave every single reason under the sun. I mean, he brought up 
bird flu, swine flu, everything. <laughs> I'm not even joking. I, I it's I'm sure people can find the press conference on uh on YouTube. But it just reminded me of that. It's like, oh, you know, my health's not good. And I haven't got the time to do it. And i got this holiday coming up as well. It just reminded me of that. <laughs> All right, well, back to 1909. The balance sheet finally arrived, where it was revealed that Balmain's games at Birchgrove Oval was producing the best gate takings. So the league decided to allow Balmain to play nearly all of their games at home in 1909. Wow. This decision saw Balmain move from sixth place in 1908 up to second place in 1909. They actually only played one game out of their uh, nine nine home games that uh, nine games that year. Only one was played away from home, so they had all but one game at Birchgrove Oval. Wow. Now, after Broughton resigned, he was replaced by another politician named Edward O'Sullivan. He came from Tasmania, relocated to Melbourne, and then later on moved to Sydney. In 1882, he was overseer at the Daily Telegraph newspaper, which thereby means that the Telegraph, much to our dismay, has links to rugby league way back to 1909. <laughs> um, in his time in Parliament, he was a very hard-working minister for public works, responsible for major development of Sydney's tram network, building a number of new railways, water supply networks, roads, harbours, buildings, most notably the new Central Railway Station in Sydney. Oh, wow, that's really interesting. He also had a very short tenure, but we'll we'll get to that in a sec. Mm-hmm. Um, James Gilman returned home in May 1909 with the kangaroo tour returning a reported debt of £418. In today's money, that's about $60,000. After arriving in Sydney and learning of the annual meeting, Gilman said... I feel a sure throb in my heart that I can absolutely explain and vindicate myself regarding the charges made against me. What I did was in the interest of the sport. If I've done anything wrong, then I expect you to give me no quarter. Wow. That's a, I mean, he's pretty adamant. He's in the clear. Yeah. Now, Daly Messenger also returned home, obviously, around the same time. And he was absolutely exhausted. You've got to remember, he'd been on this... 30-plus game tour with the 1907-08 New Zealand All-Golds team, the professional team, Mm -hmm. returned home for a few months, and then he was back on the boat and went over to England again on the 1908-09 Kangaroo Tour on a 45-game tour before having that long boat tour back. So he would have spent close to 20 to 30 weeks in the space of three years on a boat. Yeah. And, I mean, that would not have been fun in itself. And then getting absolutely flogged, like, in terms of how many games he played. I mean, he's played, like, four or five seasons' worth of games, um, even for a modern-day player, and he's done it in a few years. Yeah. He was doing so much work, and it was all on the field. Mm. Um, so he came back and he just said, look, I'm not playing any club football. I'm not playing for New South Wales or any of the Sydney teams, stuff like that. Um, just, just for 1909, he did end up playing in a game against the returning Maori team for, and that was playing for Australia, but then took another month off. Um, so that was another issue for the game then because they didn't have their star, their big money making star out playing games of football either. Yeah, and when they had used their star, they'd lost money, which is, must have really worried them. Mm, exactly. Uh, 
Now, in June of 1909, the the league decided to replace Giltonen um, and appointed the game's first full-time paid secretary, Edward Larkin. Larkin had been a state and test player in rugby union in 1903, representing New South Wales and Australia. He also became one of the discontented players at the time, and they were opposed to the Metropolitan Rugby Union, who were the governing body of, of rugby in Sydney at the time. He stopped playing shortly after, and in 1909 turned his hand to politics, where he became a member of the Labor Party. Uh, shortly after he was appointed Secretary in 1909, Samuel George Ball, or as we all know him today, S.G. Ball, mm-hmm. uh, suggested a series of games to be played between Rugby League's Kangaroos and Rugby Union's Wallabies. This wasn't the first time that this um, idea had been proposed. Giltner had been speaking about this on the Kangaroo Tour as well. Mm-hmm. The Wallabies had toured England in 1908 with great success and even won a gold medal at the 1908 Olympics, albeit against mediocre opposition. Um, I think there were only three competing teams, and the team that was representing England actually just represented one small um, town or province in, in the in the country. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't a, a huge feat, but still... They can say they were gold medalists. Yeah. Um, the idea for the series of games was to was to pay the Wallabies. And the idea so, was, yeah, you pay them. Rugby Union would then say, you've been paid to play the game professionally. You can't play Rugby Union anymore. You're all banned for life. Mm-hmm. And all those players would then have only Rugby League to play if they wanted to keep playing rugby. Now, the thing about this, right, surely the Rugby Union players knew that was the deal. Yes. And we'll get into that right now. Okie dokie. SG Ball approached the Wallabies. He was he had five hundred pounds at his disposal to lure the thirty one players across to the rugby league with. In the end he managed to get seventeen of them. And they didn't cost five hundred pounds. They cost almost sixteen hundred pounds. Which is a absolutely astronomical amount of money. <laughs> At this so, point in the game's history, we're talking three times the cost for almost for just over half the players. Yeah. Um, so in today's money, that that five hundred pounds is equivalent to about seventy thousand dollars, and the money you end up spending was equivalent to two hundred and twenty-five thousand dollars. Yeah, I would love this, to know what the reaction was when he came back and he said, "Well." I got 17 of them, and they were like, you beauty. And he's got, like, just one thing, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we need a lot more money. Yeah, can you imagine? they And all of this, the blow-up about the books of the game and stuff like that, and then he comes back with this bill. Yeah. Yeah, essentially a, a 1,100-pound bill. Mm. And this is a game that's financially on its knees. It's just had a um, a kangaroo tour that lost 418 pounds, which meant their financier of, you know, James Giltman was bankrupt. Yeah. And the other thing too to remember is you've got rugby league players in the club competition and, and test players like kangaroos players who are getting paid a certain amount of money. And then all of a sudden, there's all of this money being thrown at 17 Wallabies players. Exactly. Like they, so they would some have of had... the, I was going to say, some of these Kangaroos players were getting about two, one to two pounds to play for Australia. Mm-hmm. And most of these Wallabies players were getting around about 100 pounds to switch codes. Which is, I mean, that must have really upset 
most of the player base in rugby league. Yeah, quite a few got upset over it. Mm. Um, so this meant that the league needed money. And so they, they approached entrepreneur Sir James Joint Smith, and he agreed to cover the gap so long as he was repaid through gate takings of the Kangaroos Wallabies games. The league agreed, confident that the matches between the two sides would draw massive crowds. So this is their their grand plan to solve all of their problems. Mm. It's a bit of a Hail Mary move too, hey? It really is. It really is because aside from the fact that they are going to be getting you know, some of the most elite players. They weren't getting all of the elite, but they were getting most of them mm-hmm. um, from Rugby Union. There's also the potential public uh, backlash and the media backlash for what they've done and how they've done it. Yeah. Because this this aspect of the, of the coup up to this point is all done secretly. No one knows about it in the media anywhere. Mm-hmm. So secret was it that not even the new president knew about it. Whoa. It was kept literally between three or four people, and that was it. Wow. Um, Which must have really, when it all came out, it must have undermined the confidence of everybody and everyone else. Like, this massive, massive deal's been done. The president doesn't even know about it. And from the president's point of view, he would have felt like, well, what else is are other people going to be doing that I don't know about and haven't signed off on? But at the same time, it's like, well, if he didn't know about it, how good of a president is he? That's like, right. <laughs> such an incredible, just a mess, a real mess. It, it really is. Um, so there's more mess coming. Um <laughs> June 1909 also saw the New Zealand team return to Australia, where they played 10 games between June 5 and July 3. Australia won the Test Series 2-1, and in this time, only two rounds of the um, New South Wales Rugby League competition were played. Uh, In July 1909, the New Zealand Maori team returned to Australia for their second tour. Oh, boy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Now it starts to get interesting. (laughs) Right, so um, they played nine games in the space of a month, just before their tenth and final game. Robert Jack, who you'll remember was the bloke who was trying, who thought he was owed money by the Maori team, mm-hmm. he claimed he was still owed two hundred and thirteen pounds and issued a court order against Albert Asher, who was the captain, star player, and basically manager of the Maori team. The local police arrested Asher. When the New South Wales Rugby League heard of the ordeal, they merely settled the Maori team's debt with Jack, as well as an additional £121 that was owed to a Mr Marshall, so that Asher could be released in time to get to the game that afternoon, which he managed to do. So he's gone from jail and basically run out onto a rugby league field. (laughs) That's what has happened, yes. Unbelievable. And they've... I mean, with for him league. to be the star player too, like yeah. they they were almost like over a barrel on this one. So they've been like, "Look, just pay him the money and get him out there, get him to the ground." So they were strapped for cash. They now had this sixteen hundred or eleven hundred pounds they needed to pay out for the for the Wallabies, and they've just paid out another three hundred and thirty four pounds to settle these this spat between the Maori and 
these uh, blokes who claim they're organising games. It's crazy. It's it's insane how much they were just leaking money everywhere. Yeah, yeah. And this one wasn't even money that they owed. No, this is just out of kind of out of nowhere. Exactly. Like they they need to come up. What was it with three hundred and fifty bucks? Uh, three three hundred and thirty four pounds. Three thirty four pounds. Wow. I wonder how they got their hands on that money that quickly, because that's a lot of money back then. Well, there's a fair chance it was probably Joint and Smith again. Yeah. Um, they may have still had the money set aside from the Mary Tour from the year before as well. Yeah. You know, they'd been withholding that, so some of that may have been involved there. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also worth remembering too, and I know I've said it already twice, that um, James Giltman is dealing with a, a personal debt from the Kangaroo Tour himself as well at the time. Mm. Uh, the game is just... It's it's sucking money out of everyone, except yeah. for Wallabies players. Yeah, <laughs> they were sweet. They thought it was great. <laughs> um, in late August, President O'Sullivan learnt of the rugby league coup to buy the Wallabies behind his back. He was so angered, so angered that he refused to be a part of the game and resigned immediately. He was replaced by none other than Sir, than Sir James Joynton Smith. The man who was paying the paying for the wallabies. Yeah, so it's like the I, games when you know what, if we're yeah. going to be doing all this stuff, then we might as well get the bloke who's putting all the money. In. We might as well just make him president. And it, it makes sense, you know, especially at this point where it, it, the game is hemorrhaging so much money, and he's basically keeps going into his own pocket for it. Um, it was kind of what they had to do, really, wasn't it? Yeah. And I dare say he probably had to do it as well so that he could keep an eye on everything to make sure that he was going to get his money back. Yeah, because at some point it becomes, you know, he's, he's putting so much of his own money into it. You wouldn't want to leave it up to somebody else, especially when you're looking at all these meetings that are going on and how much discontent content there is. You'd want to be in control of it all yourself. Yeah, and especially after hearing about how poorly run the finances were. Mm-hmm. In just in the first year before things before the shit hit the fan, so to speak. Yeah. So the semi-finals of the of the competition were played on August 14th. South beat Newcastle 20 0 and Balmain beat East 15 8, which meant that South had played Balmain in the final. The competition was then put on hold for a whole month so that the Kangaroos v Wallabies games could be played. Initially, three games were slated to take place. However, poor gate takings meant a fourth match would have to be played so as to raise the necessary funds to repay Joint Smith for the money he outlaid to buy the Wallabies. The first game between the Kangaroos and the Wallabies took place on September 4. The Kangaroos, led by Daily Messenger, won 29-26 in front of 20,000 people. The second game was played four days later on a Wednesday. The Wallabies won 34-21 in front of a much smaller crowd of just 3,000. That Saturday on September 11. The Wallabies won the third game, 15-6, and essentially the series. However, the New South Wales Rugby League still hadn't made enough money to repay Joint Smith, so a fourth game was organised to take place on the same day as the final between South and Balmain. And here we get into the next drama. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's been weeks since the previous one. So. And just, it's interesting, just on those crowd figures... 20,000 for a, a match between the Kangaroos and the Wallabies. Um, the average crowd for the Balmain Tigers at Birchgrove Oval was 1,700 people. 
So, and the best crowd for that season, the best average crowd for that season was around about 3,000 for the Newcastle club. Um, so getting 20,000 to a test match is absolutely massive. But well, that's actually that an exhibition off, game. Yeah, it, well, yeah, there you go. But that, then to have that drop-off for the second match, um, they must have been horrified by that. It was pretty savage. I think they, they would have expected the drop-off, given that it was on a Wednesday. But the following Saturday, the, the crowd wasn't, wasn't that much bigger. Mm-hmm. And that's the one that would have worried them, because they would have been banking on that, that third game, being mm-hmm. the second Saturday game, to have been another big 20,000 crowd, and bang, there's our money. We've paid everything off. Yeah. But didn't happen, so they were still behind. So, uh, it was organised that the final would kick off at midday, as opposed to the standard 3.15pm kickoff that would have been used for most games throughout the season. Um, there were, I think there was one game every round where it kicked off at 2pm. So, um, the Kangaroos v Wallabies fourth game was set to be the main event, and it was going to kick. It was going to get underway at three forty-five p.m. I don't know why it was organised for the Balmain South game to kick off at midday because that's a huge gap between the two games. But anyway, the only thing I can think of is they were maybe trying to have it so that you play the grand final, that what was the final at that stage uh, between Souths and the Tigers. And then maybe you clear out the stadium and you're bringing in a whole new group of people, maybe for the for the uh, Kangaroos versus yeah, Wallabies quite, match. Maybe quite possibly, yeah. Um, so, Balmain officials said that it would be hard enough for their players to finish work and get to the Agra ground in time for a two pm kickoff, let alone two hours earlier at midday, as was requested. They asked for the final to be moved to Wentworth Park, as it was quicker and easier for the Balmain players to get to, as well as being a genuine neutral venue but the league refused. Bowman largely argued, though, that playing the final before an exhibition game between the Kangaroos and Wallabies only served to delay the premiership final. They even added they were opposed to the funds for the final being used to pay off the game's debt to Joint Smith instead of going to the ambulance fund, which paid for an ambulance to be present at all club games for, you know, deal with injuries and the like. Um, the league, though, remained steadfast. Edward Larkin informed Bowman that the program would not change. Bowman's players and officials who could manage to reach the ground at the time, they all decided they would stand outside and protested against the league, while South players lined up on the field, kicked off, and scored a try against nobody. The referee declared South the Premier's via forfeit. The famous forfeit Premier's. Um, that's and the story of them, but that's it has story. And, and there's been so much talk, too, that the animosity between Bowman and South all stem from this game in 1909. And it wasn't because South won by the forfeit. It was it was a story that South had had suggested that they would stand with Balmain outside the venue and join them in the protest, only to turn up and kick off and, and take the premiership instead. I've not found anything... Um, and a, no, you know, anything in newspapers and stuff anyway to suggest that that ever happened. All the talk about this final was about Balmain being opposed to it. There's nothing about South Sydney being upset about it or opposed to it whatsoever. Yeah. Which is, is really interesting and such a a weird situation. And South ended up playing a match against a thrown together side 
for, I guess, to play an exhibition game, didn't they? Yes. So the, the, the league suspected that Balmain weren't going to play the game. Um, but so, and the game, the league decided that they were still going to honour the commitment of having two games played at this venue for the day. So they hastily organised for a combined first grade team to play against South. South won that game 18 10. Now, a unique moment out of this is that South forward Tom Golden lined up for the combined side, which meant he picked up the unique feat where he won a premiership despite playing against the premiership winning side on the day of the final. So he was a South Sydney player, yes? Yes, and he played in the losing side against the Premiers on the day they became Premiers. Which is really interesting. <laughs> <laughs> um, he must have had a lot of fun playing against his mates, though, hey? Oh, yeah. That's the thing, though. I mean, it happened a few times. Um, in 1908, um, the last game played by Cumberland, the team where had lost so many players, no one was interested in playing with them anymore, that their last game against Norse, saw Norse hand um, two or three players to come on so that they could actually have the game, and Norse won the match 45-0. Wow. It makes you think about, and, and it couldn't happen at all, right? But if that happened these days, and you had, say, an NRL club saying, look, we haven't got enough players, can you lend me some? And who you would lend to that other club? Well, exactly. You'd say, yeah, sure, look, we've got a few... Uh, 45-year-olds that do, yeah. do a bit of training out the back. <laughs> there's, there's Reg. He's about I guess, 175 kilos. He'll be right. Exactly. I, I guess it also shows how small these playing squads were as well for these clubs. Like, we think of NRL clubs as having so many different, you know, levels to them these days. Back in these, in 1909, the squads were pretty small. Yeah, they really were. Um you know, usually, and that's the thing too, there was no, there's next to no interchange. I think the rule back then too with the interchange was um, you could only use an interchange if a player was injured and unable to finish the match mm-hmm. and you could only replace them in the first half. So if you got a player injured in the second half, you just had to finish the game with 12. Wow. It's an interesting Tough. rule, actually. Yeah, and that rule hung around for a long time. Mm. Decades. Yeah, I th- the... The way that we see the benches now, where you've got guys on the bench that come on as replacements for whatever, um, it's it's actually a pretty new thing in rugby league. Like, you, you kind of think it a bit have been around from the early days. It hasn't. It's uh, still a newish concept. Yeah. Um, so, after the South had beat the combined side, the Kangaroos then came out and beat the Wallabies 8-6, which tied the series at two games apiece. Just 4,000 people attended this uh, doubleheader, but that was just enough to part the league's debt to join Smith and finish the season with a modest profit of £39, which in today's money is $5,500. And when you consider the absolute mess of the season they've just had and all of the dramas... That's some sort of minor miracle. It is because they've they've paid off the. I mean, they've bought the seventeen of the best thirty-one rugby union players in Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, they've managed to clear the debt from that and everything else during the year. They've actually got a quite a rich man now as the president of the game, and a genuinely intelligent um, full-time secretary as well running the game. 
all the cast at the start of the year seems like it was so long ago, but it was only a few months ago. Yeah, and I also think that there's, in all of the troubles that they had, they also found that by getting through it all, everybody that was in charge now knew that everybody beneath them was watching everything they did. Their books were now all sorted out, and they were made public to the other board members and and other shareholders in the game. There were a lot of things that the game went through in 1909 that was really messy, but by the end of it, it sort sort of drew it all together in a, a weird way so that the game could then go on from that point forward. Yeah, it was almost like it was... It wasn't so much trial and error, but there was an awful lot that they learnt from the mess Mm. of 1909. Yeah, it was almost like growing pains that they needed. Yeah. Now, there was one more little thing that also happened in 1909 after that final. Mm -hmm. Um, The saga over Balmain's forfeit didn't end on that day. Mm-hmm. The week after the game, Balmain began fundraising in order to launch legal action against the league and their decision to award the premiership to South. Alexander Knox, you remember him from the start, he aligned himself with Balmain's plight, as did former president Edward O'Sullivan. Despite raising all of the funds required, Balmain decided to drop their legal action against the game. And this came shortly after the league said, you know, we're, we're going to ask the referee of that game to advise us what the official rule is on that final. And the referee said, Bowman didn't turn up, South did, they kicked off. Um, so therefore, they win by forfeit. And Bowman essentially just accepted that and went, yeah, you know what, let's just move on. Which in itself is a minor miracle, knowing the way rugby league is. <laughs> Especially with Alexander Knox there trying to push the barrow for Bowman as well. Yeah, but I, find, I feel as though Alexander Knox would have been the one of the first people to say, you know what, this is the right thing. You know, because for for the troublemaker that you could say he was, he just wanted the right thing to come out of everything that he did and, and, and said. He wanted things to be done the right way. And, you know, he rubbed people the wrong way when he was trying to sort that out. But I think his intention was always a, a good intention. Um, yeah, I dare say you could probably argue that. Um, I don't know too much about how he ran the North Sydney club and how long he was there for. I haven't looked into that yet, but that's one thing I'm definitely keen on doing because he's, um, he's an intriguing character. He really is, isn't he? (laughs) And he's, he's one of those characters too, that I like to look into because, you know, you you get a lot of people and they'll, they'll research the, the same sort of people every time. It'll be the James Gilton and it'll, it'll be Daly Messenger and the likes. And I like to find these other characters who had a pretty important role to play, even if it was just for a little part in the way the game evolved and changed and grew. And he's definitely a big part of that. And he also comes across through all of this time as someone you can almost, he, he feels like a real person, like a lot of these other people that get talked about from this era, like James Gilton and stuff, it's hard to relate to them because the things they're doing are pretty extraordinary. And, you know, these are, I mean, these are business people and they're going on tours and stuff like that. They're investing their own money into the game and stuff. 
Whereas Knox seems like the sort of guy that's sitting there going, hang on, that doesn't sound right. Like there's something about him that seems a little bit more real, you know, that it, something that comes through this story and something that comes through the notes. He, he just, his character comes through and I find it fascinating that that can be the case over such a long period of time. Well, the thing is too, is he, he knew he was being seen as quite an antagonist mm. and he was, he was comfortable with that tag. Yeah. Um, and, so yeah, and definitely intriguing like, character, that's for the, sure. With the Newcastle club, I mean, he was like, well, I'll just pay out of my own pocket and sort this out. I just find that incredible. I find it really incredible. <laughs> exactly. Um, speaking of Newcastle, um, a four-month-long strike by the Northern Mine Workers Union saw a mass of rugby union players switch codes, so much so that the New South Wales Rugby League suggested that the Newcastle team leave the Sydney competition and form their own league up in Newcastle. And so Newcastle left the Sydney competition in, at the end of the 1909 season, formed mm-hmm. their own game. Wow. Um, the league then spent the off-season looking for a team to replace Newcastle, and in the end, they signed up Annandale in 1910. With old Annandale. I see, I didn't know that about Newcastle. Hey, I thought that... Uh, it just hadn't worked out. I thought maybe it had something to do with the uh, travel or something like that. I didn't realise that they actually suggested that they start their own league. That's really interesting. Um, what's also interesting, and it'll be another podcast too, is what happened to the Newcastle League uh, eight years later. Okay. Well, that's a nice teaser. <laughs> there's a there's a carrot. Yeah. Um, just another chaos year. So... Um, so we're looking now at some of these, uh, some of these people who are involved here and just what happened to them after 1909 season. Um, so Edward O'Sullivan, uh, just eight months after he left the league, he became quite ill and died after suffering blood poisoning. He, he was 64 years old. Wow. Do they know what gave him blood poisoning? No, it's just, uh, all I could find was a long illness. I guess back then, too, like, they didn't exactly have all of the modern equipment to work out why you were dying. They might have just said, oh, yeah, he had blood poisoning. Yeah. Um, Edward Larkin, uh, he he went on to set up an affiliation between rugby league and Catholic schools. Mm-hmm. He also fixed the code's financial issues and even proposed spreading the game to the USA. Um he forged an agreement with the SCG Trust to have rugby league games uh, games played at the marquee venue. And then in 1913, he became the first Labor politician to win a seat on Sydney's North Shore. Wow. During his time in Parliament, he advocated for a bridge to be built across the harbour. That'll never work. That'll never work. <laughs> um then in 1914, just three weeks after the start of World War One, he enlisted to join the army. Many of his colleagues urged him not to go as his leadership abilities would be required on home soil. Larkin, though, insisted that it was his duty as, an, as, a, as a former athlete and as a leader of athletes to volunteer to serve for the country so as to inspire other athletes to do the same. Some also saw his decision to join as a way of helping to promote more men to join the war effort as soldiers. Shortly after enlisting, Larkin was promoted to sergeant 
On October 18, in 1914, he departed for England, where he was prominent in organising rugby league games amongst soldiers. In early 1915, while still in Egypt, he fell ill and was granted permission to return home. He refused, and just weeks later, he joined the 1st Battalion, which contained his brother Martin, and they disembarked for Turkey. On the first day of battle at Gallipoli in 1915, Larkin's battalion was one of the very first to set foot on the shore. His battalion made it up to the top of a ridge before they were gunned down by heavy machine gun fire. When approached by the stretcher bearers, Larkin reportedly waved them away and said, there's plenty worse than me out there. They later found him dead. His body was so badly mutilated that many soldiers believed he had been tortured, which angered the Australians. They later learnt of his true demise. He'd been hit by machine gun fire. Um, his brother just died beside him. Larkin died as one of just two men who served and died in World War One, while also sitting as a parliament member. He has no known grave. His name is on the memorial at Lone Pine in Gallipoli. He was 35 years old. What an extraordinary person. It's very sad that he hasn't got a known grave, isn't it? Um, wow. Genuine, like that's genuine leadership. And yeah, to think that he did all of that, you know, that time as a politician, he played for the Wallabies. He carried the New South Wales Rugby League and he died at the age of 35. Yeah, it's that's extraordinary. It's fascinating. Yeah. Uh, unbelievable human. Mm. Um, James Gilson, he later ended up in court over the Pioneer Kangaroo Tour debacle as he owed Arthur Rofe £2,000. Now, Rofe had invested that money into the tour and Gilton was only able to repay £1,800 of it. The New South Wales Rugby League refused to assist Gilman, citing that it was his private enterprise and it wasn't a debt that they owned. Which and is they... pretty disgusting when you consider how much of his own money he spent in the game. And then when he needs a bit of help, they turn around and say, no, nah, this is your problem. Yeah. Um, it didn't deter him, though. So even though he, he later declared bankruptcy, he still wanted to be involved in rugby league and he became a board member for the Annandale club not long after they started up mm-hmm. in 1914 the league named him as a life member um he died in 1950 at the age of 84 and the following year the jj gilton shield was created and awarded to the premiers of the competition wow and and it's nice that his name lives on in that yes um ernest broughton who lasted 22 days as president. Mm -hmm. He was told by doctors that he needed to slow down and and reduce his workload. And he decided that the best course of action was to not do that. Um, And in 1917, after spending years refusing doctor's orders, he he also um, suffered a long illness and died. Far out. And Daly Messenger. After taking much of 1909 off, Messenger returned to club football in 1910 for East. He also represented New South Wales and Australia against a visiting Great Britain side. In 1911, he had a breakout year in regards to point scoring. He amassed 148 points in 16 games for East in the Premiership, 113 points in six games for New South Wales, and 12 points in one game for Metropolis, which was a total of 273 points in 23 matches. After retiring in 1913, Messenger was awarded life membership of the New South Wales Rugby League in 1914. He became a hotelier. Um, I believe, too, that he had a hotel in Sydney and 
there was a, a murder that took place between, I think, an argument between two gangs or something like that downstairs in his hotel. And he wanted, he didn't want a bar of it. Um, so he left Sydney and headed up, headed up to Queensland and worked on a banana plantation for a while. Mm-hmm. And then he moved back onto the North shore in, uh, sorry, the North coast of New South Wales and became a hotelier again. Um, and then he's, I think that was where his wife died. Mm-hmm. So he returned to Sydney um, he lived out of the New South Wales uh, Rugby League Leagues Club for quite a while. Between, and he lived between there and his, his son's house. Um, and he didn't just spend his whole time there. He, he went and spent his own time going around much of New South Wales and putting on coaching clinics for kids. Um, <laughs> on one such venture in 1959, he, was, um, he went to central New South Wales, and he suffered a heart attack while he was in his hotel room in Gunnedah and passed away. So it's sad. It's, uh, it's interesting that Dally Messenger, I mean, even right to the end of his life, he, he got into rugby league and he was in it completely like he, he committed 100%, you know, yeah. and, and did so up until his death. Yeah, literally till his death. Um, there was a spat that went on over the, I think it was the Royal Agricultural Society Shield, which was awarded to the East Club in 1913. The way the thing worked then was if you won, if you won the premiership three years in a row, you got to keep it. Okay. And East won the competition in 1911, 1912, and then 1913, which meant they got to keep the shield. Mm-hmm. And I think the club awarded it to the to Daly Messenger. And there was some point over the years, that the league wanted it back. And there was an ugly, ugly saga that went on between the two for a long time. Um, I believe the family has it back now. I'm not sure, though. Don't know what happened there. Yeah. But, um, a, any... You know what? That that thing about keeping the trophy, can you imagine if they did that these days where if you win the trophy three times in a row, the premiership trophy I'm talking about, mm. They have to recast a completely new trophy. Yeah, I I don't think I'd be against that. I mean, I like that the trophy has that um, lineage, especially with the gladiators on it, and I think you'd keep that as part of it. But I don't think that'd be the worst thing in the world either. Especially given how hard it'd be to do that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Especially these days. I mean, I, like, could you imagine if? Next year, um, in 2020, the Sydney Roosters were vying for the opportunity to win the trophy forever. That would be that would be incredible. Yeah, that'd, that'd be amazing, especially if it meant that the next trophy was made to be somewhat slightly different. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like a an evolution of what we have. Like I think you can see the trophy we've got now is a, a direct evolution from, say, the Winfield Cup. Yeah. Um, it'd be interesting what the next revolu- or evolution would be. That's right. So that's the 1909 season um, in a bit of a brutish sort of manner, but, you know, it, we covered all of the major chaos that mm-hmm. went on that year. Um, and somehow the game came out of that uh, alive. Mm-hmm. And then 
1910 was was a big year because they had so many of these great rugby union players to come across that were now playing rugby league. Um, the competition went from being played over nine weeks to having a 14-game competition. Oh, sorry, 14-round 14, 14 competition. Um, 1910 also saw South create a record they haven't beaten before, and that is their biggest ever win. They beat West 67-0 in a game a week after they beat Norse 53-4. to they've, they've never had a bigger win than that since. Wow, that's incredible. Um, the, you know, the interesting thing about the 1909 season as well was the fact that the club season was, it was still the bread and butter of rugby league, but it was almost something that was, uh, how do, how do I put it? The main game was still internationals and rep games and they didn't mind putting the club games on hiatus for like a month. Mm. Um, it's interesting how that's changed over the years. That would never happen now. No, and they used, they had done that quite a fair bit actually in the um, those early years. Mm. They, they put the whole competition on hold for you know three or four weeks or whatever, so that tour games could be played. Mm-hmm. The idea was that we want as many eyes on every possible game possible. So yeah, when the touring team comes max, over, they yeah, maximise mean, profits. That's right. And they also wanted to make sure that visiting teams got the maximum money they could get because it meant that, you know, they'd split the gate takings 50-50, which meant it also meant the league in Australia would get a good bit of money as well. Mm-hmm. So you didn't want to have any games um, clashing, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. Um, one last thing about 1909 that's not part of the chaos is it was also the same year that Queens, uh, yeah, Queensland started their first ever rugby league competition. It was based in Brisbane. Oh, wow. Um, and it was... They, they did things smoother than was going on in New South Wales. Well, the difference thing about the Brisbane one is that it was uh, it was amateur. Oh, wow. How did it, that line up with Rugby Union then? Well, that was I think that may have been part of the um, purpose behind it was that people could play both codes. Oh, okay. And it wasn't going to affect their amateur status. Ah, Wow, that's um, an interesting way to go about it. So there were only four teams in the inaugural um, competition in Brisbane in 1909. That was Fortitude Valley, South Brisbane, North Brisbane and Toomble. And they played six games. And uh, Fortitude Valley won that year. Nice. <laughs> so there we go. Well, that was that's fantastic. And look, uh, you've done so much work to get this episode together. Uh and you've taught, I mean, you've taught me about things I had no idea about, and I'm sure our listeners are going to be absolutely enthralled by this episode. So well done on this, Andrew. Um, I know you don't like praise, but you really deserve it for this episode because you worked so hard to bring it together. So thank you for doing that. Yeah, no worries. It's, uh, it's, it's still something I look at and go, aside from the uh, the chaos of the year, I still don't know how to put it in an order mm. where it flows because there's just so many different storylines and so much chaos going on everywhere and trying to pick the right bits to talk about and um, trying to have it flow in some manner. Mm-hmm. Uh, damn, it was hard because there's just so much crap going on. I can only, couldn't, couldn't imagine what it'd be like trying to live through that as, as an official. And I do often wonder how would the game be, um, 
reported on if it had today's media reporting on that sort of chaos? Yeah, I guess the only times that it's really come close to that is maybe at points during the Super League war. Yeah. Um, where the, there were pivotal things and such glaring issues and things that were kind of happening, uh, you know, almost daily at that point. Um, I, you know, one of the things I find interesting is that they're all having these meetings in this, in the newly formed league. There must've been times where, you know, they'd lean to the person next to them and say, yeah, this ain't working, is it? <laughs> you know, I mean, it's got to have come very close at certain points. And I would love to know how many people that were more administrators than anything else walked away from the game during this period of time as well, because it really was poorly run. It was. And I wonder, too, how much that comes down to the fact that there were so many politicians involved in it. Um, a mm. lot of them were from similar thinking political parties. So there was a lot of Labor politicians, as, as you heard, yeah. um, that were involved in the game then. The Labor Party was relatively new. Yeah. So yeah. there would have been a lot of people who may have come from a different political party with slightly different views. Um, so, yeah, just it, it's it's fascinating how how much chaos went on. And it went on everywhere. There was a little bit in Newcastle. There was a, you know, obviously a lot in Sydney. There was a bit on a boat over in England, you know, coming back home. There was craziness going on over in England. And there were still repercussions of the 1999 season that went on in the years afterwards. Um, but still, despite all of that, there was still talk from, from Edward Larkin about how the game needs to look at expanding to the USA. Yeah, like they you still... ha- you've only just sorted out your own doorstep, and you're already thinking <laughs> of expanding to another country. Yeah, like, and can you imagine how that would have been received <laughs> just in just in Sydney? Yeah. Um, it is very, very. It's a really interesting point in the game's history, and there's so many characters there as well. So many characters with different backgrounds and different motivations and stuff as well. Um, and it really is a miracle that the game got through that period of time and got at, come through it stronger. There's this weird thing about rugby league. It doesn't matter what happens to it and how bad it looks like it's getting. Somehow it just gets stronger and stronger. And yeah. it's, I don't know too many sports that are like that. It's, it really does have the soul. It's a very strange sport like that. Yeah, it just can't be killed. No, can't. Doesn't matter how much you try. Doesn't matter how much it tries to kill itself. It can't yeah. do it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and at, we've had people try really, really hard. I mean, even the Nazis tried. Yeah. Yeah. I only worked for a little bit. Yeah. Oh, it's, <laughs> nah, it's, it's, it's So yeah, there's um, I've got a few articles written about it all, which we'll we'll put in the in the notes, I guess. Yeah. Um, I've written a piece about the 1909 season. Another one about. Edward Larkin, one about Henry Hoyle, uh, the Maori tour, uh, Pat Walsh, who I mentioned, Jimmy Devereux, who I mentioned. So there's quite a few I've written about, so we'll, ch- we'll chuck them up somewhere. Might even put them on your website. What do you reckon? Yeah, yeah, I'd be up for that. Uh, I can I can either put them in. I might, I'll try and get them all into one article, and we'll try and uh, have it so that basically this uh, 
this podcast and I'll chuck an article on my website that will have the podcast on it and all of the links, but we will put all the links in the show notes as well. So on your podcast and apps, you'll be able to go straight to them as well. There you go. Plenty of reading and listening to do all at the same time. Mm, definitely, definitely. And uh, I love these history episodes. I love learning about the game. I love learning where it's come from. And I think that all of these history episodes, it really gives you a context about where the modern game is because over time you see certain patterns emerge in the game's history um, and you see what works, what doesn't work, how sometimes rugby league goes back to things that doesn't work. Um, but yeah, I, I love them. I think they're fantastic and we'll try and get through a lot more history podcasts, especially over the off season. Absolutely. Um, so thanks for tuning in everyone. Um, if you want to follow us on Twitter, get onto a Fergo freak pod. As I said at the start, you can follow me at Andrew RP. You can follow this man league freak at league freak. Um, check out his website, leaguefreak.com. Plenty of opinion and news and everything else on there. The podcast over there as well. And you can check out my website, rugbyleagueproject.org, for all of the history and stuff, as team lineups and whatnot of games as well. And also the Patreon account. We need to, because this is the sort of thing the Patreon account pays for. Uh, so do you want to give us the address yeah, for your not? Patreon account? So, uh, yeah, you go on to uh, www.patreon.com slash rlproject. You make a donation there from anywhere between, I think, most people are donating between $1 and $25 a month. So, um, yeah, chuck any old thing in there and every little bit helps. Keeps it independent and keeps it owned by the fans. Exactly. And um, that, and we all know what Andrew's like. He, he's the first person to, if you ask him a question, he's the first person to say, well, this happened or, you know, here's this information you're after and stuff. And uh, so please donate to that Patreon because um you know, it it really does. It produces fantastic work like this. So thank you for that. No worries. And uh, on that on that note, we'll wrap this one up. Thanks for tuning in, everyone, and we'll uh, catch you next time.